You're about to hear a podcast that we recorded about consent and sexual violence. And so I wanted to talk just briefly before that, that sometimes what can happen for folks when they listen to these conversations is that it can actually trigger a response of, oh, shoot, that actually happened to me. And so if that's an experience for you, be mindful of that. Take a step away from the podcast, but it has happened for folks. So the narratives that we talk about might be surprising. They might be new information. It might be affirming or confirming something that you've already felt in your gut. And so just be aware of that. And if, so we do mention some resources on the podcast, but if you need any supports, there are local sexual health, sexual assault organizations in Calgary that we are aware of. If you're not from Calgary, if you're from all over the place, we can help you find a sexual violence community centers. So have a listen. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Prayer in Private Parts, a podcast about sex and Jesus. I'm one of your hosts, Jill Thompson. I'm a registered psychologist and sexual health educator from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And my name is Nick Coates. I'm a minister here in Calgary. This podcast is open, honest, raw conversations, most likely conversations you have not heard in church. But we think you probably should. Each episode, we tackle a topic about spirituality and sexuality, and we see where it goes. So let's get started. Please note that while these conversations are just conversations between us, they do not replace any serious psychological or even theological advice. And that if you find yourself triggered in one of our episodes, please know that you can find help in your area. If you don't know of any of those places that are safe for you to access in terms of a distress center or a church that's safe and affirming, we can try and help you find that and you can email us. Welcome back, folks. Today we're doing a, I think, a, one of the most important podcasts we're going to record. No pressure, folks. Um, talking to my co-host and our guest. Uh, it is Nick and I today, but we do have Hello. a guest today. We have a guest named Chelsea. Hello. Uh, before we get going, so we will we'll do some introductions afterwards. But before we get going, one of the things that we've gotten some feedback on, and we love your feedback, so please give us feedback, prayer and private parts at gmail.com uh, or head over to our website. And now introducing Instagram. Oh, yeah, we're on Instagram oh. now. At prayer and private parts. Yes. Look at us. Give us a follow. Yeah. So any of those places where you want to give us some feedback is really helpful. But one of the things is doing a land acknowledgement. So if you are unaware about what land acknowledgements are, I'm going to be, I'll say Google it, but it is important to acknowledge the land that we're on and the land and the kind of the history that is in this land. And so I'm going to let Chelsea, Chelsea has a special land acknowledgement that is related to our topic today. And then we will continue on with our topic. Yeah. Wonderful. Thanks for having me on. So Um, Today we are going to be talking about sexual violence and consent. Um, And when we have conversations of this type, it's especially important that we we recognize all forms of oppression, including the ongoing oppression of Indigenous people in Canada and in other parts of the world as well. So Canada is a country that's built on colonialism and the effects of those practices are ongoing today. We know that intersecting forms of oppression contribute to sexual violence, and in Canada, Indigenous women experience disproportionately high rates of sexual violence. So in the spirit of respect and truth, and as a third-generation settler of this land, I would like us to take a step towards reconciliation by acknowledging where it is that we're gathering today. So we are in Calgary, Alberta, 
Um, and Calgary is situated on the land where the Bow River meets the Elbow River. And the traditional Blackfoot name of this place is McKinstis. And these are the traditional territories of the Blackfoot and the people of the Treaty 7 regions of southern Alberta, which include the Sigsika, the Pikani, and Gainai, as well as the Sutina and Stony Nakoda, and the Stony Nakoda Nation, which includes the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. And I would also like to acknowledge the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3, who also live within this territory. Thank you. I do... No, I think that it's a really great way to start. And so if you don't know the land where you are, so I kind of, we have some listeners from all over. Um, if you don't know, Google it. Like I know that sounds, but do land acknowledgement, Edmonton, land acknowledgement, Toronto, and you can learn about the land and the treaties or some places don't have treaties and, and ceded land. There's lots of great conversation. But for me, what I think about is the fact that I'm fourth generation settler in Canada. And I think about being a guest in this land. And I think so much of the work that I do with people is I'm a guest in their lives and in their spaces, in their homes. And so treating it like that. And so even this podcast, we are guests in your space right now. And so we just want to acknowledge that. That's how I kind of think about land acknowledgement. So today, I think we originally talked about calling it consent. And then more conversation that we had, we've realized it's much bigger conversation than consent. Because I think then Chelsea had talked about this a little bit in some conversation outside of here, that if we just say, once we all understand consent, then poof, like sexual violence is gone. But sexual violence is a much bigger conversation. It's systemic. It's intersectional. And so I think today it's, we're talking about consent, but also sexual violence. So Chelsea, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us who you are and what makes you passionate about this subject? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my name is Chelsea Humphrey, and I'm currently uh, studying um, my master's of clinical social work at the University of Calgary. And um, this topic is of particular interest to me. Um, I've worked in the field for a number of years, um, and it also has a lot of personal significance in my life. Um, I've, I've had experiences with sexual violence, and I've also worked with a lot of people who've experienced sexual violence. Um, part of my role um, for the last two years was... Um, as an educator with um, Calgary's Sexual Assault Centre, um, which is called Calgary Communities Against Sexual Abuse. So that's a bit of my work history, and I've learned a lot from, from working there. Um, yeah, so today I'm here speaking as myself, but of course, a lot of my learnings have to do with things that I've learned there and from other, you know, wonderful, powerful activists and feminists in my life. Cool. So... We kind of talked about where should we begin? Should we talk about the definition of consent or even the definitions of sexual violence and that? So what do you think is most helpful, Chels? Well, I think that in having these conversations, it's it's good to start off with looking at the language that we're using um, and specifically really trying to be mindful of using person-first language as mm -hmm. we move throughout this conversation. So we know that... Um, people tend to use words like victim or survivor. And 
different people feel quite differently about about those different terms. Some people might prefer the term victim because it recognizes that a crime was committed against them and that it was not their fault. Other people find that term very disempowering. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Recently, we've seen a shift towards using language around survivor, Mm -hmm. but um, I've heard from some people how, you know, they don't feel like they have survived yet. And so that term might not necessarily fit with whomever we're speaking to. So when talking about sexual violence, um, it's really good to start with a neutral, to start off from a neutral place. So just saying um, someone who's experienced sexual violence or people who experience sexual violence, and then let the person that you're talking to decide what term they feel comfortable with. Um, that's kind of giving the power back in terms of labeling their own experiences. And the same goes for when we're talking about people who choose to use sexually violent behaviors, um, using words like perpetrator or abuser um, or rapist um, those terms carry a lot of weight, and we know that with sexual violence, the overwhelming majority of the time, the person who uses sexual violence does so against someone that the individual knows. So this, you know, the the stranger danger myth is is really a myth, and this is something that unfortunately happens in the context of of relationships between people. And so this could be someone's partner, their friend, their parent, their church leader, for example. It could be any of those people. And if we come in there and use the word perpetrator, then we're not respecting the existing relationship that this person may have with the individual who hurt them. Because it could be someone they still really care about in in some ways, and it's not... um, it's not really our place to label that individual. Again, it's up to the person who experienced the sexual violence to decide how they want to talk about the other person. So whatever language they use, it's okay to mirror that. But I think always starting from a neutral place is a really good good way to go. I love that so much, even just talking about giving the power back, because so much of what sexual violence is, is about power and I think people think about it as just being about sex and it's not, it's about power and power and control. But then also when you're thinking about relationships, so maybe even the person can identify something with that relationship and there is a power different, like a power dynamic in that. When we're talking about sex and Jesus pieces, there's also this system that they're part of. So maybe they can identify that, you know, this leader in the church was the person who chose to do sexual violence against them, but then they still love the church and they love the community and they love God. And I've heard people even saying, you know, I felt like God had been the person who was sexually violent against me. And so, yeah, that person-centered language is so important. What did you think of that, Nick? Yeah, I think I like that because it's it's such a personal thing and to honor the narratives that people are going to give us mm-hmm. um, is a way for us to to truly understand and hear their story. Um, and that's, yeah, so I, I appreciate that aspect of it. Uh, could you give us a, a definition of 
consent. So just kind of what we can, you can gather us all on the same page. So what do we talk about when we talk about consent and sexual violence? So is there a kind of some working definitions mm-hmm. you can give us? Yeah. So I think when we're talking about sexual violence, I'll start there and then narrow the focus a bit. So sexual violence includes sexual harassment, um, sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, and sexual assault. So we know that some of the the impacts around all forms of sexual violence can be quite similar. So sometimes we can use those terms kind of interchangeably, but it helps to understand. So sexual Mm -hmm. violence is the umbrella term. Um, And then sexual assault is, is the other term that we'll be talking about as we, as we go through. Um, And so when we're talking about consent, um, I think, I think you had a, a good definition of, consent. I think we both, Nick and I had, so yeah, precursor to some of this is conversation. Like Nick and I did record about consent and then had some folks listen and give us some feedback. And we really, really wanted to get it right. So we're like, oh, let's add some more. Let's bring someone else in. That's a, that's an expert in this area. Not that we don't have experience, but just to kind of broaden the conversation. I, I think when I was talking about consent, I usually just talk about it being ongoing Mm-hmm. enthusiastic and yeah. and there's different ways you can give consent that you can give it verbally so like saying yes or yes and or yes but also and setting some boundaries there can be kind of a nonverbal for like the body's responding and like you're leaning in towards somebody you had like a great bus example yeah for that absolutely mm-hmm. so um yeah we talk a lot about how consent can be communicated both verbally and non-verbally and sometimes people have a bit of a hard time understanding that nonverbal side of consent. Um, and people kind of think that it can be quite complicated, but I really think that, uh, that, you know, we give and receive consent all day throughout our daily lives to multiple different things. This doesn't just apply to sexual activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so an example of that nonverbal kind of consent would be, so imagine you get on a bus um, and there's someone sitting in a seat with an empty seat next to them, but their bag is sitting on that empty seat. And when you get on, they don't really make eye contact with you. They leave their bag there. Um, it's quite clear that that person does not want you to sit in the seat next to them. Now, imagine if you got on you got on the bus and that same individual, they made eye contact with you. They picked up their backpack and put it on their lap and kind of leaned over a bit. Um, I think most of us would would get that nonverbal sign that it's it's okay for me to sit in that seat. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And nonverbal, I, I think we can come back to it a little bit talking about church spaces though and gender roles and why sometimes it might be hard to read nonverbals as well because mm-hmm. if there is this power dynamic, somebody might look like they're saying yes or even say yes, but there's all these reasons why they kind of have to say yes in many ways. So we'll come back to some of that mm-hmm. if that's okay. That was a little vague. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think, I think I'm picking up on a part of what you're saying and how mm-hmm. that relates to consent. So, you know, to, to, consent isn't a worn down no. Yeah. Um, consent is affirmative. It is when someone is communicating verbally or non-verbally that yeah. they are agreeing to the activity. As you mentioned, it's ongoing. Um, consent is also, t- it's time specific. Mm-hmm. It's activity specific. Consent to one type of sexual activity does not imply um, consent to other types of sexual activity. 
And consent is also not possible when someone is incapacitated. Yes. Um, and again, the consent isn't valid if someone is under any sort of threats or coercion, yeah. coercion or pressure or any misleading information. Those are all mm-hmm. times when consent um, is not valid. And how I've kind of seen that show up in the church, that like worn down, I really want to emphasize that. I've heard that this like worn down, like you hear sometimes people say, well, God's calling me to be in relationship with you. Like this is what God wants. And, or you've already gone this far. You might as well keep going. I've heard things like that from folks that have been in church communities or and outside of church communities as well. But, um, or also this kind of, you can, you can only have this power or you've, you've already done this. You've already been sexual. So you might as well keep going with me or else I'm going to tell church leaders or right. So there's threats and those that's not consent, but those are the ways I've seen it show up in church. And it also shows up in terms of our committed relationships where, Mm -hmm. especially in marriage kind of situations where there's this, Oh, we're married now. So like we have this just blanket consent to have sex whenever someone wants. And so I think we, we, I've heard it played out and I've had a lot of conversations about, oh, we're married. We like, that's just, we can have sex all the time. Mm -hmm. And so you almost lose that autonomy to, to choose because in a lot of Christian circles, you get married so you can have sex. And so it's, I'd love to hear some thoughts later on too um, about like, how do, how do we navigate consent in those committed relationships where you, you're in this partnership or partnerships and, and how do you, navigate consent within that yeah. commitment you've made where con- where sex is often perceived to be this given. Well, and even the biblical narrative. And so around submit to your husband, mm-hmm. people will say, well, that's your like biblical duty. That's your wifely duty to me. Right. And that, that is not consent. And that is, I would say sexual violence. And I will say it point blank. And I know I'll say it later, but I really believe that church culture has a huge impact on rape culture. And so just the narratives around that purity culture, the purity myths, myths around virginity, the, the putting women's bodies, it's not just women's bodies, but um, specifically it's pretty gendered in church space where it's a commodity. It's something to be earned and gained. And the only worth it has is it's in, in its virginity. And so I think that that is a narrative that's not just Christian culture, but also our, it's the dominant narrative in Western, well, global North culture, I would say, that is harmful and perpetuates rape culture. So we can come back to some of that. Yeah. Do you want to add to that? No, I think that's okay. great. <laughs> um, so we kind of laid down some consent. I think we missed a little piece. People can give written consent as well. So uh, I know that's less common in sexual relationships, but for some people in kink communities, that's an important piece of creating contracts. And what's crappy is that stupid 50 shades of gray kind of did a number on society and really giving a really unhelpful, unhealthy way of looking at kink communities. But those can be, so it can also be written verbal, but also can be yeah, the signed piece. Mm-hmm. Can you can you both say some more about that? Um, not necessarily the kink aspect, but the important uh, importance of communication in consent. Just like how how what are some tips or just what should we be aware of mm-hmm. when 
are talking about what are we consenting to, how are we consenting, and and how are we supposed to verbally and non-verbally communicate um, on both sides of that conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think really a good way to go is if you're ever not sure, then ask. If you're ever not sure if the person or people that you're involved with want to be doing a particular act, then just ask them. And people tend to think that this has to, that this can be, you know, really clumsy and kind of kill Mm -hmm. the mood and things like that. But really, I mean, I think generally like it's pretty great to know that the person you're being intimate with also wants to be intimate with you. You know, checking in can be as simple as like, how does this feel? Should I keep going? Or what do you want me to do? Things like that. Um, And also really being attuned to the body language of the other person of the other person. And I think, you know, when we're talking about um, people that are in relationship, um, so if that's a committed relationship, for example, they, you know, we get, we become pretty attuned to our partners. Um, You know, if my partner's talking to me and I start to uh, zone out a little bit or stop listening, uh, she can tell right away that I'm no longer listening to what, to what it is that she's saying. And, the same goes with any sort of sexual activity, right? We can tell when somebody's no longer really present or into it. And so it, I think it's really about looking for those subtler forms of communication and just always being sure that this person wants to be doing what And so underneath that, it's really a conversation of just emphasizing how consent really is a way to love, respect, and humanize our partner or partners where it's your you see them as a human being and you love them and you respect them and, and that constant checking in and looking for body language and just making sure on the same page is really a way to affirm their worth and their value to you. Mm-hmm. And so even if it does kill the mood, like, okay, that's, that's worth it because you're, you're honoring who they are. So I've had a lot of conversation with uh, mainly men, but also some women too. And, and they're, they're so scared to, to check in because the red flag will go off. I'm like, oh, I don't think this is, we're really on the same page anymore, but they're scared to check in. And often later on they have, they're in my office because they have, a, they've had a fight over it. Like, oh, you should have checked in. No, I was scared. And it's just a great way for us to learn that. No, this is an act of love and, and respect by, by checking in and, and making sure we're in that communication. Mm-hmm. I do want to say one thing that's important about the body response, because this can be really confusing for folks who've experienced sexual violence that sometimes their bodies will respond. So either through, you know, completing an orgasm or having even just an erection, things like that. So they're responding and it can feel really confusing. So then they might say, Oh, that doesn't count. It doesn't like it felt violent, but it, it wasn't. And like, I kind of knew the person, but my body responded, but it felt wrong. Like if that's something for you, like that is, considered sexual violence, I would say. Do you want to add something? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah no, I th- I really appreciate you bringing that up. I think mm-hmm. that's really important to talk about. Um, and in part of my work also involves educating children, also well, involved educating children. And, and so how we explain that to kids is just sometimes our bodies respond like machines. Um, and so, you know, if you go outside on a cold day, you're going to get goosebumps and you can't control that. And with different kinds of physical touch, our, our bodies do respond. Um, 
And so that can mean, yeah, as you said, you know, that can mean feelings of pleasure in the body while the person is really terrified while that's happening. And this can be incredibly confusing for sure. And I think there's, you know, a lot of misconceptions around like, oh, well, you know, for for men, if they had an erection, for example, that that can't be sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely not true. Um, so super important to be mindful of that. Yeah. I was even thinking about, I I forget what book I read it in. She's the same author as Lullaby for Little Criminals, which is an amazing book. Yeah. There's another book that they, that she wrote, but I remember the description of the sexual violence that this character experienced in an orphanage, which is a narrative that happens a lot in the Catholic church. There was a lot of secrecy and shame and we, we can come back to that piece, but you know, feeling really loved and like mothered. So even the like physical, so it can go the other way of your body responding because you feel loved by this person and cared for in a way that you haven't, but then they're doing things to their your body that they were like in the book. It's such a great narrative of, you know, I it felt wrong. It felt like I didn't consent to this, but I still wanted this relationship with this person because they are my caregiver and and I loved them and I wanted them to keep giving me that special attention because it was the only mother I knew. And so it can go that way as well, um, especially I would say in, in church contexts or yeah, some of those church mm-hmm. spaces. So Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I love talking about about how our bodies respond to trauma. So I'll try not to go too in depth. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if that's, you know, within the no, scope. No, it's great. Right. It's, it's so good. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. I think that's the yeah. really confusing part for a lot yes. of people is that they're feeling caught in that moment of, I have, I might have feelings for you. My body's reacting. And so those things are saying yes, but there's something saying no. Mm-hmm. And it's this mm-hmm. weird whirlwind of, conflicting emotions and desires and gut reactions and we just don't know what to do with it yeah Yeah. and on the other end we may not know how to receive that and Mm -hmm. so i go there because i think that's that's the conversation that we're missing around consent yeah where it's not it's not simple in the sense of it's just like yes it's like we have to wade through all those things and communicate it and to understand more about our bodies and that process i think could be really helpful to us yeah, definitely. So, um, so what you were saying, Jill, about about you know if that person's a caregiver. So, whenever we experience like emotionally distressing things, our attachment systems activate, and you know if this is someone who who you may rely on to meet your emotional needs, your you know if it's someone who you know provides the clothing on your back the the food that you eat especially when we're talking about you know about children they really do rely on on adults and so when that attachment system is activating is activated it can get really kind of com- complicated for sure and while we're you know talking about the body's response to trauma um I, and talking about consent and how that fits into sexual violence um Jill, you mentioned at the beginning that sexual violence is about power and control. Um, and I think when we're talking about, about these issues, there's a tendency to want to present consent as the solution to the problem. Um, 
And I think, you know, consent is a really important part of that. But when we're looking at why sexual violence occurs, it really is about power and control and those attitudes and beliefs that people hold about other people. Um, because, you know, it in order to justify using sexual violence against someone else, you have to kind of believe that they are less human than you are, or they're less valid than you are. Um, and so, yes, consent is important, but I think those, you know, those conversations about power and, um, and also things like privilege and entitlement, right? Yeah. If someone feels entitled to another person's body, um, that's not good. I know you're going to keep going, but I want to jump in and reconnect yeah. back to that church piece. And when I was saying the church culture impacts sexual violence culture, and that is exactly it. It's because we believe that certain people, certain bodies, certain certain groups of people are less than in church communities. So it's been women, gen- women historically, LGBTQ2S folks, trans folks, right? Like I know we kind of clump everyone into the LGBTQ2S, but you know, even as we've had conversations about, we've navigated the conversations about women in the church, it's still there, but now it's conversations about same-sex marriage, uh, trans folks, non-binary folks, and then even like people of color, we can, indigenous folks, as you mentioned at the beginning. And so we say these groups of people are lesser than, and they deserve less in our church spaces. They can't vote. They can't hold positions of power. And that is exactly that. We're saying that you're lesser than and you're something that I can, it, we we give permission in that to complete acts of violence. And it's not just sexual violence. It's all types of violence. And it, it goes straight to believing that God made other people inferior. Yes. Hmm. And that in God and God's infinite wisdom, yeah, that it created a hierarchy. And with men on the top and then everyone else less than that Mm -hmm. and so that gives us this in a lot of christian circles this baked in hierarchy of domination and patriarchy and abuse uh, where we can just look to the bibles women are seen as property yeah and they're categorically seen as less than human Uh, but if you actually go back and read other parts of the bible that way as we've gotten into no god created everyone as as equals and so we, we need we in church circles we have to have this conversation because it's not you're right it's not just about sex this is about how do we view the other and how are we called to treat them yeah and how do we treat each other it seems like the ultimate question is how do we treat each other with respect and dignity and love and justice um, and how if that is our ultimate call and spoiler alert it is mm. how do we do that. Um, specifically when it comes to sex is kind of what we're doing here, but just in general for all things in terms of how do we treat our neighbors? How do we think about reconciliation? How do we think about um, equal rights? And these things, it's just, it's all kind of rooted in that one issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people will struggle to connect how churches, how this narrative is connected to sexual violence and, I always say, just look around your spaces, your faith communities, whether it's your small group or your church space, but like, who's in leadership, who's on the board, who's on the vestry, who's representing. And I talk about this even kind of because people are like, oh, women got the vote in whatever. I, I always forget the date because I'm like, well, no, not actually, not all women because Indigenous women and women of color weren't actually allowed to vote for 
decades later. And so when those people aren't voting in churches or in our government, well, I'm thinking about is the things that are going on south of the border to us. Um, but when they're not in represented in our government and in our church spaces, they're not, their voices aren't in our liturgy. Mm-hmm. They're not in our worship. Right. Yeah. And I, I would just, I would expand that too when we have have these really important conversations about consent and sexual violence and justice um if you're you're talking about those things and reading about those things and listening to podcasts the question would be who are you listening to and what voices are represented Mm -hmm. and so how how do we have those different voices so we can just see how how does their presence change the dynamic of this right um and this is really what jesus did from the beginning like by bringing people in from the margins his whole thing was, how do we create this world where everyone's welcome? And he knew the only way we could get there is by bringing other voices in that weren't represented. So the people in the center could be like, oh, like, I had no idea my actions and assumptions and thoughts and worldview impacted you that way. And it's only when we're actually with people that we can begin to understand and change and create a world where everyone's welcome and there's justice and reconciliation and all those beautiful things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, we kind of like took over the trauma response conversation. No, that's, I think, you know, in just in the way that um, that you asked, Nick, about about the trauma responses, um, that just kind of got me thinking about, about framing it a little bit more. And so I think that was an important kind of divergence from where we were going. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and so we can come back to the trauma response because I, yeah. I think we can come connect all the things and but yeah, talk about trauma response. So what happens in the body when we're having trauma? And we might've mentioned this in some other podcasts at some point. I don't we've know. Done, we've, we've mentioned yeah. it a bit and you've thrown out a few book titles. Just mm-hmm. like, how does the body deal with trauma and store trauma? Yeah. The body mm-hmm. keeps uh, the score. Yes. When the body Vessel says no. Coke. Yeah. Vessel yeah, yeah. Vander Coke, when the body keeps the score. And then when the body, uh, yeah. When the body says no by Gabor Mate, who's a Canadian author, which is cool. Great book. Um, yeah. And then some, there, we can throw up some other. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Yep. just give yeah. us the like, give us the one hundred and one on on that. Trauma <laughs> okay. response. Yeah, so I think you know when we talk about trauma responses, um, people tend to think of just kind of the fight or flight responses, but of course we know that freeze is actually the most common stress response. Um, and there's also other stress responses as well that are not really talked about a lot. And so one of them is, is called fawning. And so fawning is, is when someone kind, kind of goes along with what is happening to them. Um, and fawning is an attempt to minimize further physical um, harm. So, and I think that's one that can be really, really complicated for people um, because fawning can in some ways look like, you know, people, people think that fawning means someone was consenting because sometimes that can, you know, be trying to gain some small bit of control over what's happening. So that can be like asking the person to use a condom, for example, preventing that kind of further harm. And people hold a lot of shame around, around those different kinds of responses. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about some of just the church stories that I've heard and experienced and even my experience in church because I kind of landed in it later and sitting there and saying, oh, this doesn't feel right, but like all these folks are in leadership. They know what they're doing. 
they're quoting the Bible. That's actually, I always tell people the reason I went to Bible college was so I could quote the Bible back at people because (laughs) I was like, oh, well, they quoted the Bible. So now I, obviously it's truth, right? And so, yeah, I think that's one thing that I've, I've seen constantly. And so, yeah, I'm thinking about that fawning and people just going along with it. This is the way it is. This is the way it has been. And so can you then contrast, because I've never heard that term before. I think that that's really helpful. Can you contrast or say some more about how that's not consent? Um, yeah. And just so we're like, oh, well, you asked for a condom. So like, clearly you're giving consent. And so just like, so if we're, when we're talking about consent, like how is that not what we're talking about? Yeah. So, um, you know, consent is not valid if someone is under threat of, of harm. Um, and that includes, you know, it, for example, if I, if I ask someone to slow down or to stop, um, and they don't listen to that, I would be quite terrified that they are going to sexually assault me. Um, and so with that fear of that happening, my entire stress response system is going to kick in. And so what that means is, you know, um, when we experience trauma, our physiology, our brains and our body enter a survival mode in which we're responding really automatically and unconsciously. And our brain is making decisions in milliseconds. And so um, what that can look like is, you know, kind of acting without thinking of it. So this is all happening on a subconscious level and the part of our brain that is the thinking part of our brain, that prefrontal cortex is actually offline when someone's having a stress response. And so that means that they're, you know, you're, they're not able to think through what's going on. And by the time someone becomes fully aware of their situation, their body may already be on the move or shut down. And so we see these different kinds of responses and sometimes they can be quite subtle. So people often think that fighting means like punching someone in the face, but that can look like, you know, pushing someone kind of pushing someone off, you know, a lot of that pleading stuff, saying things like, I love you, not here, let's just talk. All of those kinds of things can be part of this this stress response. Mm -hmm. And Jill, I know you've worked a lot with people who experience um, trauma. So I don't know if you want to speak more to the trauma responses. Yeah, I was thinking about some of the the narratives that I've heard, just even in my own story and friends' stories and clients' stories. And just, and obviously when I talk about people here, it's going to be a general, it's not a specific client because it's a narrative I hear so often is this, Actually, I'll relate it to um, one a, a comedian. There was an article that came out from this woman, and she never disclosed her name, but she talked about feeling that she had been experienced sexual violence from this comedian. And this was happening a lot during the Me Too movement, right, where folks in positions of power were getting called out. And this one particular article, I remember reading it. My sister and I read it, and we kind of, mm-hmm. I will be transparent that we laughed. We were like, well, not just like explained every date in my 20s. And then we kind of took a step back and we're like, oh, that's fucked up. That's so weird that that's like the norm for women to just, you know, it's late at night. You've had this like nice day. It's it's slow, right? It's a slow thing where all of a sudden you're at their place. It's really late at night and you're scared. And so you just keep going along with things, even though there's part of you that's like, no, I don't want to be here. I, you know, and then, oh, there's so many narratives that come in. And I think even about church narratives, right? And 
I've talked about this in other podcasts of especially the purity and feels like the first time, like if you've already had any sort of sexual experience, like you're already dirty, you're this used piece of gum, you're a used piece of duct tape. So fuck it. You might as well just go. It's like a weird way to like keep you safe, but it's like, it's not safe. Right. And I'll talk about with clients, it feels safe ish. Right. And that's like fawning or even that subtle, like not here, like let's keep talking. But then eventually you're just like, okay, well let's, I I might as well keep going because I want this to be over. And like the safest way to do this is right. This, these subtle things, even though it's still violent. Right. And so, yeah. And I also think about people don't understand about the prefrontal cortex. So when that's offline, because people will say like, oh, well, why didn't you just do this? Why didn't you just call an Uber? Why didn't you just call a friend? Like that's your prefrontal cortex is decision-making and problem solving. That's what's happening in the front of your brain. And it's the last thing to develop. It's the first thing to go offline in trauma. It's the first thing to go on offline in substance use, right? It's your brain just, you can't com- like think complex. Complexly, that's a word. Go with it. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so that's some of the the things that I've mm-hmm. seen with trauma response. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and that freeze response can can also look differently. And so, you know, all animals freeze. Like we, I was just thinking about my cat. Yeah, <laughs> I put her in a onesie once, and she a whale onesie, and she yeah. like she'll freeze and she'll just lay there, but that's a trauma response. And we're like, Oh, it's adorable. It's not, it's actually totally, totally. And, and, you know, we see this with like, you know, the whole deer in the headlights thing. And, um, you know, people have seen videos of fainting goats, right. Where they, you know, are scared and then they get really rigid and they fall over. Like that is, that's a freeze response and freezing can also be that kind of collapsing. And so that can look like falling asleep, um, going totally limp, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And these are all things that are, that happen without an individual's conscious control over it. Um, and sometimes it can feel like they didn't do anything, but really their system was making really rapid decisions really quickly. Um, so that's even something yeah. to, as, as partners to be aware of, where if they're just laying there, they're not unconscious maybe, they're not saying no necessarily, but that is a, a symptom to, to look for of feeling uncomfortable of saying no and not consenting by just by freezing. Mm-hmm. And so just like one more thing to pay attention to of like, Oh, something's off, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to even that, that thank you, like for the, they might not even be able to articulate it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they can't, they just physically and literally can't tell you stop, mm-hmm. but that's just one more thing to kind of look for, for nonverbal responses of, of what to look for, for consent. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking there's a really great video called Trauma on the Brain. It's a, I think it's out of the UK, but I use it in workshops to talk about just to give that narrative to frontline workers because we do this with clients too. We're like, oh, well, explain it. Just one, just calm down and we'll talk at them. But it's even as simple as being saying, do you want a sip of water? Like to have a sip of water, bringing them back into their body. Or So coming back to, um, yeah, the body and not so much cognitive thoughts that piece so I know we have I'm looking at the time and I want to make sure we kind of catch some of the pieces that we is there anything that we've been missing and well before we get into mm-hmm. I think we needed to do like what and we've hit on it already 
um, but like, why does this matter spiritually and why does this matter in the church? But um, because Chelsea, you're here, is there like, what else, is there anything else that we're missing in this conversation that you think is just like, we can't stop before talking about this? Oh, I mean, <laughs> and, and we we, yeah. we got a bit of time, so like, okay. don't feel like yeah. rushed. But if we want to make sure, because we know this is such a huge issue, and we'll have no doubt four, five, six thousand more episodes about yeah. consent, and it's come up in all, probably every single episode that we've had. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we really want to do it justice because this is this is just so foundational, and so we'll make time for it. Okay, yeah, I mean, I think. I think having more episodes around these topics would be fantastic. I think especially, you know, looking at um, issues around child sexual abuse and how that relates um, would be a really like a, a whole other hour long conversation. Um, and I think, you know, something that we we kind of touched on that, um, that understanding of how sexual violence happens. Um, and so there's a, an image called the anti-violence pyramid that um, Calgary Communities Against Sexual Abuse uh, has kind of put together. And and that pyramid has, you know, at the base, there's attitudes and beliefs. Um, And those are attitudes and beliefs about all all different kinds of things. Um, And a lot of those isms come in there. So things like, you know, sizeism, classism, racism, ableism, ageism, uh, mm-hmm. heterosexism, cissexism. And I know a lot of these terms might come out, come out super jargony. Um, but basically, you know, any sort of discrimination against anyone else mm-hmm. because of certain aspects of their identity. And so we know that when we look at um, people who experience... Um, discrimination based on aspects of their identity, they also tend to experience higher rates of violence. And all of these different aspects of our identity interrelate with one another to shape how we move through the world, right? And Mm -hmm. so we can experience oppression in some areas while experiencing privilege in others. So understanding that as the kind of the foundation for for sexual violence is really important because then we see that kind of progresses into the verbal expression stage. Um, and so that can, that can be like jokes, um, mm-hmm. kind of, do you want to? No, I'm thinking about the examples? book. Yeah. The book, the body is not an apology. It is an amazing book. And Sonia Renee Taylor, just look up her Instagram, look up her social media, listen to her on any freaking podcast that she's been on. Um, I'm hoping that I'm getting pronouns, right? So I'll just use no pronouns, but I think that that book has just really helped me in talking about, there's a, a little work, like a little, there's a little work, I don't even know what to call it, diary exercises in the book. And one of them is, what are your attitudes and beliefs about the following bodies? And it will say women's bodies, trans bodies, lesbian or gay bodies, fat bodies, people with varied abilities, people with mental varied mental abilities like what are your attitudes and belief and often what comes out of that exercise I've done it myself I've done it with other folks is this unknown bias and narrative of they're either not sexual beings and we we completely say none of these are or they're hyper sexualized beings and so that even just that is so problematic because then it comes into right those attitudes and beliefs of well you know 
they, oh, I can't even say it, like they're asking for it somehow mm-hmm. because of their body or their gender or any of those different identities. They can be intersecting identities. It can be like that, but even the jokes and, right, it, there's so many sexual jokes and yeah, like I even just think of, I can't even think of it now. My brain just went blank, but you wanted to add something, so you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like all of those different things. Oh, that's what remember? she said. Oh, that yeah. Stuff. Like, oh, that's what he said. That's what she said. Like it was so, my youth group used to say it all the time and they actually changed it. I'm calling y'all out right now too, because I would say, stop doing that. They called it point. Instead of saying like, oh, that's what she said. They say point. So then you think it in your head. And it was, <laughs> yeah, yep. youthlings. Yeah. Um, right? So you're Christians. not- Christians. Oh, yeah. Like, just instead play, of saying fuck, they'll be like fruit. You're like, it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Just play apples to apples with Christians and all the stuff comes out. Have you ever played apples to apples or Dutch Blitz? <laughs> play apples to apples or Dutch Blitz with Christians. Because apples and, to apples is the clean version of Cards Against Humanity. Basically, but they make it dirty. Anyway, I love my youth wings. <laughs> they're great. But right. So yeah. those subtle things, like those, on, sometimes they're not just narratives that we're aware of they're un- they're mm-hmm. biased unaware right unconscious that's the word i'm looking for unconscious bias right and then it becomes jokes mm-hmm. and the subtle like permission giving that yeah. we believe people are lesser than and that they somehow deserve sexual violence or violence of any type sorry yeah no absolutely and and you know people don't often walk around saying like oh i believe women are less than men like or you know, you know, some people do, of course, but often it's these these more subtle kinds of things, and people will test the waters with those kinds of jokes, those slurs. You know, like what you were talking about, like the mm-hmm. and it, that made me think of like the ranking system, ranking attractiveness on like a scale of one to ten, all of these kinds of yes. things. Like that is so problematic, and that's a verbal expression of those attitudes and beliefs. And then people, you know, some people will choose to move on to the physical expression, which is where we start to see sexual assault happening. Yeah. I say, I'll say to people too, because they'll say like, how did I get here? How did this happen Mm -hmm. to me? And I say, it's not like this person just came up to you in the, in the bar or whatever. I was thinking of a specific example about a friend. It's just, it's only they came up to you and like, Hey, I'm, I'm, do you want to come over and I can like be sexually violent with you? (laughs) It's this coercion. It's a slow, pieces that builds and builds and builds and it's that wearing down piece and then all of a sudden yeah it's happened it's not like people are walking around saying like oh i'm an extremely violent person i think that's and that's why this conversation is so important to kind of take it back to the article that you were talking about it's this sexual violence is baked into our culture Mm -hmm. and so many of us aren't aware of that but to pay attention to like everything that you've said like it's it's so important because that helps us break down that narrative and make space for like, oh, we like there is a different way to act. There is a different way to treat people. Um, sex can still be amazing, um, even better um, by this new narrative of dignity and respect and justice. But we first have to call out this other narrative first. Yeah. And I loved what happened with the Me Too movement. So if, yeah, during the Me Too movement, people started hashtagging church too. Because I think there's this narrative that like, oh, this doesn't happen in church. We're so pure. We're so nice. We're nice people. We love Jesus, so therefore we have no issues. Yeah, and we're not violent at all. Well, just... Just if your preacher yells, 
then there's your first clue. Yeah, sometimes when I have preachers yelling during the sermon, I just, I'm like, I need to leave. Why are you yelling at well, me? I remember, and, and I think it's like, it's a, it's not a silly example because it's serious, but it's, I remember a, a preacher having this conversation and he was on one of the first few dates with his now wife. And he was like, oh, I want you to like listen to my favorite ministers and preachers. And they were all yelling. And she asked, she's like, why are they all yelling? What? He's like, they're not yelling. They're just preaching. She's like, no, they're all yelling. Mm, and that was the first time he realized, like, oh, my God, this is really aggressive. Yeah. Like, it's a lot of kind of finger pointing, and they're just in the passion, but it comes across very violently to people. And that's just one aspect of how, how in the church we have this, mm-hmm. this violence kind of baked into how we receive it, and it just trickles down from there. So, it's, this is something that we have. The Church Two movement is so important. We have yeah. to give it time and space in all our traditions. Well, and in, in the church movement, too, one of the problematic things is that we often deal with conversations just within the church. And so, we'll silently move people. We won't talk about it. And if we do talk about it, I've seen, I've actually seen women have to get up in front of congregations and read letters of, like, confessions that they've engaged in premarital sex or hypersexualized behaviors or something. Mm-hmm. And then men don't have to do the same thing. This is something I've seen. And then wow. they just get you know, move to a different position or to a different church and things are dealt with internally and they're not dealt with in a way that's really supportive to, I think, everybody in the situation. Uh, Yeah. And so that's problematic. I even think like the big, big, big story that most people are aware of is what's happening in the Catholic church and all these priests that were just moved and moved and moved and continued having acts of sexual violence to children and to other congregational members. And the church was aware. And instead of taking them out of the positions of power, they just moved them and silenced everything. And so I often talk about in workshops too that, so I'll say, how many of you had talked about sex in church? And most people will say no. And if they did, it was usually harmful messages. But the fact that we don't talk about something also says something. Silence is a message as well. Silence says this is shameful and this is a secret and we don't talk about it. And so people won't talk about it in church spaces or other public spaces as well. Um, because, yeah, it's, it's silence and secrecy and shame. Yeah, I think it's important to, like, and especially as a preacher and a minister, we need our congregation members to say, like, hey, can you, we want you to talk about whatever it is. So, talk to us about sexual violence. Talk to us about consent. How does our faith speak to this? Because this is a spiritual issue. We have to stop pretending that this is just something that happens outside our doors. Right. But why is this something we should talk about? So, if, if your preacher is asking for suggestions, name it. If they're not asking for suggestions, name it. You have the power to ask them to speak on these things. And we need to have these really robust conversations, whether it's something we've never talked about in church before or it's something that we've talked too much about in church before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any final thoughts? Uh, <laughs> so many. Jobs, anything from you? Just the time flew by. I know, yeah. so, it really does. So quickly. <laughs> yeah, it totally flies by. We, we ended... Jill mentioned how we had this, we recorded this episode already, and I, I want to kind of circle back to the way that we ended that yeah. one, um, because often it can be really helpful in, in for, for us to, like, hold consent in a particular, particular way. Um, and, and one way that Jill and I kind of 
spontaneously arrived at it in our previous recorded episode was understanding consent as a sacrament. Yeah. And the sacraments are those these things, these practices that we have in, in, in Christian culture that, that make God's love and God's grace visible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think understanding consent as a sacrament can be a really powerful and beautiful way to understand it is by practic- practicing consent. This is actually a way for us to, to live out God's love and God's grace and God's justice. And by honoring the other, by honoring their body, their humanity, their dignity, um, it's a way for us to actually really live out our faith. Well, and the other thing about sacrament is sacrament is is consent in so many ways. So, the sacrament of marriage, the sacrament of baptism, confirmation, those are actually all involved for most narratives. This You have to learn pieces before you do it. And so, I think that comprehensive sexual education is a helpful way to talk about, and about power and dynamics. Mm-hmm. So, that's part of the sacrament is learning. You learn your church. You learn the Absolutely. history, right? So, you learn things before you say, yes, I'm going to do this. But it's also communal. So, mm-hmm. the the sacraments in the church is, is a communal. So, it's I stand up in front of the church and say, I'm going to get baptized or confirmed. And the community says, we will stand with you mm-hmm. too. And it's a very like consensual process that's fully um, fully consensual. That's what I was going to say. Oh, it's, it's, <laughs> and, and it's often enthusiastic. It's, yeah. it's relational. It's consistent. Do you know where it's I got conscious. sidetracked in my head? I was thinking about that group of youth in the United Methodist Church. I don't know if you've all seen that video. They, for their confirmation, they stood up and read a note that said, we have chosen not to be confirmed yeah. because where the church is at right now on their stance with same-sex marriage, we don't agree with and we can't be part of this church. So, they did not wow. consent. It was like, it's a beautiful video. And, 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 I, and that was sacramental. Wow. It is, like, yeah. it's, it's you're standing up and, say, and offering your mm-hmm. voice and they're hearing you. Yes. And I think that that when it comes back to, you know, talking about sex and and acts of sex, whatever that looks like, and intimacy in the church and our relationships, that, yeah, it should be a communal conversation. It should be something that we're learning about. It's ongoing. It's commitment. It's commitment and, to doing better. And, so yeah, talk, so. and talk to your friends about it. Mm-hmm. These are important conversations that, that we need to practice and, and have share our experiences with. Yeah. And so, we, we, it there's no shame in this conversation. This is such a beautiful conversation, an important conversation to have. So, so Chelsea, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, for sharing thank your wisdom you. and leadership and your work on this. It's it's so so important, and so we we appreciate you coming on and sharing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for having me. Thanks for all the work you do. Thank you for you know creating this space and and yeah holding space for people to talk about these things. Um, as someone who hasn't you know, grown up in the church, um, my partner has, and I feel like this has, listening to your show has started so many conversations and really mm-hmm. allowed me to better understand mm-hmm. a lot of things. Thank you. So, yeah, appreciate thanks that. For yeah. that. And so, if you are listening and you have questions, if you have uh, needs or whatever, you just want to get in touch, um, shoot us an email, prayerandprivateparts at gmail.com. Uh, shoot us a note on Instagram at prayerandprivateparts. Um, or go to our website, prayerandprivateparts.com. Just Google Prayer and Private Parts. You'll find us. Yes, um, it's true. And so we got some great episodes and more people coming up soon. So thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you. And we'll talk to you soon. Grace and peace, everybody. Thanks for listening to Prayer and Private Parts, a podcast about sex and Jesus. If you want more episodes, you can find them all on iTunes and Google Play or on our website, prayerandprivateparts.com. 
We'll have all our episodes there along with maybe some show notes and ways to get in touch with us. If you want to get in touch, you can also email us at prayerandprivateparts at gmail.com. See you soon.